This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. What I'm going to talk about today is Aquinas on prudence, final, the final end, uh, and political wisdom. And you know, I'm going to offer a kind of paradoxical thesis. This is a very simple introduction to Aquinas' moral thinking. So I'm not going to cite him chapter and verse. I'm going to give a kind of very general overview, uh, which would be something you could follow up with by studying his moral theory in greater detail. And I'm going to argue something somewhat paradoxical, which is that uh, Aquinas's contemplative understanding of the final end of the human being as union with God has profound political connotations that are in some ways very positive. And I may, if I can make it to it, think a little bit about the pandemic as a test case for moral prudence or moral decision-making, complex political moral decision-making. I want to start by talking about a distinction we could make when we look at Aquinas's theory of human action, his theory of moral agency, between truths about moral behavior that are non-negotiable and truths about moral behavior that are negotiable or debatable. So it's helpful whenever you're talking about a, a, an explanatory science or discipline intellectually to try to figure out what the required starting points are, and also perhaps to think about the limitations, the negotiability of uh, the discipline. Some, so you wanna think about what are the things that you are committed to necessarily if you're just trying to locate the object of reflection that make it possible for you to do the science or take undertake the study of the object so if we're doing biology studying biology we're going to need to look at living things if you have no living things around you it's going to be difficult to really study biology properly well anyway when we're talking about moral behavior aquinas is going to um try to locate the study of human freedom and the evaluation of our free action as morally felicitous or infelicitous with a number of primary starting points. And I want to name three of those. In fact, they're all disputable. Okay. They're all disputable. And in some ways they're all counterintuitive for our modern individual culture. But I think they're all also somewhat liberating once you start to uh, think about them and, and somewhat inevitable. So the first starting point for Aquinas is that mor morality is non-negotiably about the pursuit of happiness. So that already sets you on a course that's very distinct. It's not a course of defining morality as conformity to the law or uh, the pursuit of utility or the pursuit of pleasure, although you might wonder if pleasure or utility or conformity to the law are those things which give you the greatest happiness. Rather, it's framing the whole question in terms of eudaimonianism, as it said. What is it to try to be happy and therefore to employ one's freedom for the pursuit of the authentic good and the avoidance of, uh, an objective, of objective evils? Here, goods and evils are being identified first about things we pursue to attain happiness, right? So let's just say we think happiness comes through friendship, friendship with other people as a good. I'll come back to friendship later. And the pursuit of friendship is a sort of, uh, it's an objective good that can lead to the flourishing of happiness and the an activity that would corrupt a friendship or lead to its uh, unraveling would be behavior that you could call 
con- antithetical to the good and, and, in fact, therefore, in some sense, evil or corruptive of the good. All right, so we're looking for ways of living that will make us happy and uh, avoiding evils that will, der- uh, that will um, derogate from our happiness and how can we perceive, uh, perceive and pursue the good. The second thing is he characterizes the pursuit of the good and the pursuit of happiness unqualifiedly in terms of the pursuit of final ends. And this brings up the question of means and ends. So let's say you're, let's just say you want to figure out how to think about prudence. So you decide to take the risk of committing an entire hour of your life or half hour of your life to listening to some person on a video screen talk about what prudence is. Presumably the end you're pursuing is understanding a subject matter. And the reason you do that more generally is you are a, a philosopher. I mean, as a human being, you're a philosopher. You're seeking knowledge of the truth of reality. But let's say that you have to choose between, I don't know, um, pursuing knowledge of the truth and philosophy through this particular means or keeping an infant alive by feeding it uh, because it's in danger of some kind of, you know, illness or something. I mean, you should probably choose to feed the child rather than study philosophy. We could negotiate, we could debate about that, but I mean, that, that's where you're going to get negotiables. But the point is, you're going to have to make decisions about ends and means. What things are more ultimate? What goods should I be pursuing? How should I arrange them? And Aquinas doesn't think that's really avoidable. You're going to pursue ends. You're going to have to think about what ends you prioritize, and you're going to become a kind of person in your character, in your moral agency, based on how you appreciate hierarchically arrange and pursue various ends and, and understand them as means to one another or related to one another, how they distribute, how they are, how they are, you might say, ordained and coordinated. Okay, so we have happiness, we have the pursuit of an end, pursuit of ends and means. And then something that I think is most counterintuitive perhaps for us is Aquinas thinks that morality and moral behavior are always related to the pursuit of Common goods and communities of persons. Now, when I say the word common good, if I say we all have a place in the common good, a lot of people will think immediately, I'm thinking about what's called distributive justice. What's distributive justice? So you have a mother of two children. They're both, like, they're six and eight. This, this, the six, let's just say the eight-year-old is a math wizard, an aspiring math, math wizard scaling the mountains of, of math, going places, no classmates can. And the six-year-old can't get past basic, basic arithmetic, right? The mother is going to distribute her time more justly to the six-year-old to help them and, and try to get the eight-year-old like going on their own. But the distributive justice there is to help the one who needs the more help than the other. And you would say, well, maybe that's the common good to, to provide to each one what is due to them. That is not what Aquinas thinks. He thinks that's a part of the common good. But ultimately, the common good is not only when the mother distributes goods to the children or when the children contribute to the good of the family by setting the, fa- the dinner table um, or when they all participate in things equally. It's when they all enjoy together a common life of communion by living a collective good that they cannot have apart from one another. Right, so in this sense, the family of the mother, the children, and the father is not like a pizza where you say, the mother says, you know, I'm, I've, been, I've enjoyed being in this family, and I'm going to take my slice of happiness, like this slice of pizza, and I'm going to leave the family, and, you, and that's be my part of the common good. Because when the mother walks out the front door, 
there's no more common good in the way there was before, no more shared life together. And the common good is what Aquinas sometimes called social or legal justice. You could call it participative. It's characterized by social or legal justice, but you could call it participative justice. It's the, it's the social character of being with others in a delightful and happy life together. So, for example, in a university, you pursue not just your individual um, learning, but you do it in a sociable way, in social animals, in a communion of learning, in a community of learning. And part of the delight of being in a community of learning, and that could be three people, that could be a class, that could be working with a professor, is, is that you're learning with others and from others in a shared social setting, and that there's a social communal delight in that. Okay, so now we have three non-negotiables for Aquinas. They all can be defended dialectically, but what Aquinas, what I mean by non-negotiable is he thinks these are, you're going to do these things whether you say you do or not. You may say these things aren't real. I don't really pursue happiness. That's not my moral calculus. I don't really, you know, pursue ends and, and hierarchically ordain my ends and think about means and ends. And I don't really live in common goods and pursue communion of uh, happiness through communion of persons. But in fact, Aquinas say you will perform a contradict. You will perform contradictory what you espouse if you deny you do those things. You will live in performative contradiction practically because you must do those things because of the kind of nature you have. This is non-negotiable. You don't get a choice about that. You're a rational animal. So you're going to live this way. Now, he may be wrong about that. I find this account compelling. But, you know, I'm just laying down those basics. And that's things, those things are true whether you're a member of the National Socialist Party. Those things are true whether you're a communist who's running the camp at the Gulag. Those things are true whether you're um, living in a pre-literate society or a non-literate society uh, in a tribal structure. Those things are basically characteristic of all human communities at all times and places. In, in different to the question of their moral nobility, their degree of learning, uh, their artistic strengths and weaknesses, their religious dispositions, right? So this is not to say that uh, the fact that you can't avoid them doesn't make you always a perfect moral person. It just means there's some givens in human nature like this. So the really more important thing, or you, know, you might say the more controversial questions begin I mean, that was already controversial if you're a utilitarian or a Kantian deontologist or you have other starting points in morality. But, but the bigger questions begin for what we could call prudence when you think about what's morally negotiable. Regarding, I have three morally negotiable points from Aquinas' point of view. The first is different conceptions of the final end, like what you should ultimately live for. Now, here you have to make a distinction. On the one hand, Aquinas thinks you actually have a kind of nature that you have to live for something ultimate that really will satisfy you. And there are a lot of misconceptions. I mean, it's not like the case that if I tell you I want to live for the pursuit of wealth and you want to live for the pursuit of honor, academic honor, uh, and this other person over there wants to live for the pursuit of contemplative knowledge of God and friendship, that we will all acquire naturally the end we choose, right? So if I decide to live for wealth, I will just become the kind of being who's happy by, uh, you know, pursuing wealth. Right? Aquinas thinks that's crazy, and it is counterintuitive, surely, um, because we have an objective. I mean, I don't think he would consider it as a possibility that you could existentially reassign your final end because he's committed to the idea of normative human nature. And he'll argue about what that nature is. So in, in that sense, uh, we are all characterized by the same final end, whether we recognize it or not. But we don't necessarily know what we exist for, and that's the big drama. Um, the first 
kind of serious negotiable dispute is about what the final end of happiness, what the final end is that can ultimately arrange human desires in view of the things that can truly make them happy. And Aquinas spends a lot of time discussing the controversies about whether it's bodily pleasure, honor, uh, human intellectual learning, wealth, um, the life of faith, uh, and other possible sub, uh, sort of oppor uh, opportunities, whether these can be the authentic final end. He does this at the beginning of the Prima Secundae and the Summa Theologiae, the first part of the second part, the first two questions, first three questions, and then a long analysis in the Summa Contra Gentiles, book three. There are other places he talks about these things, but those, there are major treatments in those, in those locations. Now, what does he argue? I mean, I'm not going to repeat, I'm not going to try to give you the whole argument. I'm just going to tell you that Aquinas thinks human happiness requires that we pursue multiple goods in a hierarchical arrangement, and some of them are more essential than others. So, for example, the pursuit of virtue, virtues like justice, temperance, fortitude, and, and, and human prudence are essentially necessary if we're going to stabilize ourselves, but they're not sufficient. We need friendship with other people as a necessary good of human existence if we're going to be naturally happy. With, and uh, that is a good that we sh should prioritize, but that's not going to be enough. We need to pursue uh, understanding of the ultimate truth of our human situation because we're intellectual creatures and we want to know why we exist, what for, and what life is about. But that's not going to be enough. So these things are all necessary, but they're not sufficient conditions of happiness. Um, more ultimately, he thinks we do uh, need to uh, contemplate or discover some truth about God if on a philosophical level we're going to be happy. And he argues that the philosophical knowledge we can have of God is achieved by very few. So that's just note what I just said. We really need philosophical knowledge of God, but it's achieved by few. That suggests he doesn't think many people are going to be happy. But wait for where this is going that the philosophical knowledge we can obtain by God is indirect, that we achieve knowledge of God through his creatures, and we can, with great difficulty and hard work, come to understand that God must certainly exist as the creator who sustains all things in being, things in being and understands certain characteristics of God, and acquire a kind of, I put this in quotes, kind of philosophical friendship with God by contemplating God indirectly through the mirror of creatures. But even, then he argues philosophically, even when we do that, our knowledge of God gives us, provides a beatitude or a happiness that is only imperfect because we don't see God in himself. And so philosophically, it's reasonable that we should want to see God in himself, which can only come about through some possible uh, experience after we die and not by means that we have in the possession of our nature. So philosophically, what Aquinas argues is we can be partially happy by arranging goods like friendship and the pursuit of knowledge in a stable environment of virtuous living under God, for God, with some knowledge of God. And I think he thinks also natural love of God. But that this philosophical happiness, this balance of living under God and for God with these other goods underneath is imperfect. And really, it's also fragile in our world for reasons he thinks derived from original sin as a theologian, but he doesn't say that as a philosopher. It's fragile in this world, and so we really need a higher gift or help by God's grace to achieve a stable orientation towards the eternal vision of God, which is what Christianity promises by arguing, by asserting as a revelation, 
that God has offered us the grace to be friends with God in this life by faith, hope, and charity, to see God in the world to come. Now, I've just said a lot. What have I said? I've said that Aquinas thinks the ultimate final end is, is to have a knowledge of God and some love of God with the other goods that are significant stabilized underneath it in a life of virtue. And that that knowledge itself is sufficiently fragile and imperfectly grasped by us that we really need some kind of help to orient our life in that direction toward God. And that is, in fact, given to us in the Christian revelation, wherein, by the grace of Christ, we're invited to believe in God and know him in friendship by faith, hope, and love in this life, to see him in the beatific vision or the vision of eternal happiness in the life to come. And he thinks this is something, the, the, the Christian promise of the beatific vision is something that philosophy can in no way verify. It requires faith to know about it and believe in it. However, the philosopher can say, for Aquinas, the philosopher can say, qua philosopher, if that exists, that is the best thing of all. As a philosopher, I can say, if my mind could see God face to face, so to speak, if I could see the essence of God, that would be the greatest thing the intellect could behold. Okay, so that's a very uh, medieval conception. It's also the teaching of the Catholic Church that we are made for the beatific vision. It's a classic teaching of the scriptures, of the early church, of the medieval church, and of the modern church. If you read the modern catechism of the Catholic Church, it's actually the continual teaching of the church. So people can differ about the final end, whether God is involved in that at all. Um, a lot of people would say, no, the higher final end for me is my family. Some people would say, no, it's the political common good. It's the common good of citizens and a shared life of virtue in society. Other people would say, no, it's the pursuit of pleasure. Other people would say it's the pursuit of honor. Other people would say it's just a life of learning. And Aquinas is going to try to argue that none of those things are enough, even if those things are all relative goods that have a place. So that brings you to the second morally negotiable argument. The first morally negotiable argument is about what you should live for. And I've argued it's ultimate knowledge of God in Aquinas' perspective. And secondly, um, the second negotiable question is how do you arrange how you arrange the other goods. And that's, that's negotiable, not just because people disagree about what they should ultimately live for, but even when they can agree about various ultimate goods, they can disagree about where to subordinate various goods to one another prudentially as means to an end. So for example, to take a religious example, I could decide that knowledge and love of God in this life and the vision of God in the next are the ultimate good of my life as a Christian. And then there's some philosophical defensive defense of this. This is a philosophically defensive propo defensible proposal. But I'm going to pursue this good through, uh, I don't know, meaningful work of being a lawyer in the world, being married, trying to have a family, uh, and contributing the good of political society in X, Y, or Z way. As where I could also decide I'm going to do it by becoming a monk and living in a Benedictine monastery and pursuing the contemplative knowledge of God. And that's a very different assortment of goods and means uh, as ways to grow closer to God or to, to live unto God uh, in and through the pursuit of lesser goods, legitimate goods in this world. Um, you can also have negotiable ways of serving God in the way you use prudentially one good, like work, you know, the pursuit of work. I could work in um, Seattle or I could work in Omaha. And I could take job X in Seattle or job Y in Omaha, and I'm going to become a kind of different person and have a different set of relations um, in my character, in my, in my talents, in my way of, of thinking, behaving, and who I associate with and, and what I contribute to. So character is formed in different ways by the different means we take on 
uh, of pursuing ends. And we make a lot of our hardest decisions about those kinds of deliberations, to choose to go to Omaha or to choose to go to Seattle or to choose to marry this person or marry that person or to choose not to marry, but to pursue a religious vocation or to choose to be a lawyer or to choose to be an astronaut. So then you get into a, a sort of le less important, but still important negotiable area, which is, let's just say you've chosen a given meet, a given good as an end, a relative end, means to get there, right? So I've decided I have, I am going to do, uh, I'm going to pursue medicine. I'm going to be a, um, you know, a cancer specialist. And I'm going to pursue medicine by going to medical school, but I haven't decided if I'm going to go to the University of Texas and I, or if I'm going to try to go to, uh, you know, uh, Boston University, if I'm going to work in Massachusetts, I'm going to work in, in uh, Austin. And uh, I'm also going to have to take um, the MCATs. I think it's called the MCATs. But anyway, that means I'm going to take biology and organic chemistry in college, but I haven't decided what order to take them in. Right? So a lot of material prudence is about thinking about all the realism of ordaining all the means to the end. And then you get micro ordinations. Like I'm in organic chemistry right now, death march through organic chemistry. And I've got to try to decide, you know, how I'm going to study for this exam. Am I going to study this body of notes first? And then that body of notes, am I going to read drink? Uh, how much caffeine am I going to drink to stay up all night? Or how long am I going to stay up? How much sleep do I need? Right. So you get into micro prudence. And um, if you think about it, there's a kind of cathedral going on in your mind all the time. By that, I mean an orchestration of all these massive, this kind of vault, the ceiling vault of what you're living for. And then the way it orchestrates all your micro activity in view of your middle term activity, in view of your major goals, in view of your ultimate end. And that stuff's happening. You, you may be a very um, different kind of cathedral than your neighbor because you're, you know, you may have a, a, the rose window and at the ceiling, you may just be living for, I don't know what, you know, you want to be the greatest doctor in, uh, you want to get the Nobel Prize in medicine for treating cancer, and that's your goal in life. Uh, or you could be thinking about um, just living for the, the pleasure of the sustained activity of drinking too many um, um, unwell-crafted American-made beer, beers, right? I mean, you could just decide, I like to drink bad beer. I live in a trailer park outside of Austin, and I listen to one of the more um, less refined country music stations. And I have found happiness in doing that. And, you know, other people who are kind of in that redneck ilk will, will find that a, a perfectly defensive, defensible act of redneck hedonism. But your cathedral looks pretty different. And, um, you know, so the, the, the point is you can, you, can, you can live in very different ways based on these three degrees of moral negotiability. What are you ultimately living for? How do you arrange the various hierarchical goods? What do you prioritize among them? And then how do you pursue the, the, the sort of more middle-term means in view of the various ends you choose? So that brings us to my third, my, uh, third topic, moral wisdom and moral prudence. So moral wisdom is really about the first of the negotiable categories. That's to say it's a philosophical stance that has to do with your perception of what human nature is, our common human nature when you try to decide what we as human beings should live for. Now let's go back to my first non-negotiable categories. I'm looking for happiness. I'm pursuing a final end by which I can kind of orchestrate my life and I'm pursuing common goods and community of persons. So what common good are we living for? And for Aquinas, actually the common good he's ultimately living for is the common uh, enjoyment of God with the blessed. 
Heaven is not individual for Aquinas. It's a shared life in which what we call in the Catholic tradition, the communion of saints, the community or the city of God, the community of saints or the city of God, in which the saints collectively enjoy together in a life of shared friendship, uh, the vision of God, that they live with God as his friends by grace, and they see God face to face, and they also enjoy each other's enjoyment of the holiness of seeing and beholding God. Right. So what's the closest analog in our life? Well, in the order of grace, that would be the shared pursuit of life of God through uh, shared contemplation, research, and worship of God. You could say it's the collective life of the liturgy, of the shared enjoyment of God, uh, the pursuit of the happiness of being with God in the liturgy, uh, the pursued shared life of being with God in prayer. The, pursuit, the shared pursuit of being with God in, in study of God and, and wisdom, Christian wisdom, intellectual pursuit of knowledge of God, and, uh, and the, the way that that's coordinated and shared among people, and the shared life of virtue of serving God together. That may sound a little boring, but actually it's a pretty interesting life project compared to like the trailer park example, or maybe even the pursuit of the Nobel Prize in medicine example, because um, it can accommodate a lot of those other things. I mean, you can actually still drink beer while living for God in moderation. That's where you start to evaluate the quantity and means and all that. Then you can certainly be a medical doctor and serve God. If you go down a register from this spiritual vision of Christianity into this the philosophical analog, the highest common good would be the life of philosophers. And that's not, I don't mean philosophers like the people paid in the department, although they may be included, they may or may not be included. I mean, people who seek with their intellect wisdom about the ultimate meaning of life and to the extent that they can strive to understand the first principle of reality, the transcendent mystery and source of our being that we call uh, in religious terms God, but which philosophers can call the first truth or the, the horizon of being, the origin of our existence and the final end of our human striving. So Aquinas unapologetically thinks there's a philosophical place for thinking about God. He doesn't buy into the gentleman's agreement not to talk about God and philosophy that currently holds sway in many academic departments. So moral wisdom has to do with thinking about whether that is the kind of human being we have. I just want to just stop there briefly and note there are political consequences to that question that are rather massive, not little ones, massive ones. So if you think the ultimate end of the human person is merely biological, and can only be studied empirically through goods we pursue in this world through, for example, um, nutrition and reproduction and any kind of form of education that deals directly with the material world, say, the pursuit of the knowledge of the hard sciences and the applied sciences, engineering and medicine. And that, because you're, you're in a kind of empiricist naturalist, you think that's the only horizon to which human beings can conform their moral reasoning because that's the ultimate threshold, the end. Uh, the common good is like political life in this world according to our material biological conditions. I mean, you're really committed if you start going down the road of, of consistent thinking, of concluding that no legitimate moral wisdom can exist in which a human being would try to orient themselves beyond that sphere, for example, towards a religious end, be it a kind of cosmic karmic end of Buddhism or certain forms of Hinduism or a monotheistic end as in the great monotheistic traditions. So if there's enough of you who hold that view, I mean, it does become a question of what you do with those material animals that are best explained only by their 
this worldly, empirical, naturalistic, biological functions who have gotten the, the benighted idea in their head that they live for invisible things. And so it might be interesting to think about whether you could create an education program or social conditions to, in a way, um, uh, abuse them of their metaphysical errors and of their um, mistaken religious notions through education or perhaps through social pressures or through exclusion of certain channels and means of assent to the levers of power in society. And so you would try to create a systematically irreligious and, in fact, in some ways, anti-religious society. Now, there are major, major societies in the world, some of the most populous in the world, where that philosophy actually, in a certain sense, does currently reign. You alternatively could think that we have a religious conception of the world in which people who don't think the way you do religiously are not permitted to pursue political process, participate in political processes, because, because insofar as they're getting the end wrong, they are necessarily going to mislead people. And because they're going to mislead people as a charity to themselves and others, we're going to have to keep them out of the pursuit of uh, uh, fundamental uh, political offices. Right? So that's another interesting option. <laughs> you know, and the, the idea that you can say neutral on this, I'm going to just be a kind of a liberal, neutral proceduralist and allow people to have uh, whatever conceptions of the end they want, that's probably not so um, morally innocent as it seems. Um, it, it, it may be possible to strike that balance in a way that allows for a society of pluralism. But you're going to have to have some general eudaimonistic vision of what we can at least minimally agree on as necessary for the pursuit of good to allow diversified religious and non-religious citizens to coexist. Right. So then you get into really important political reasoning about what are the what are the minimal medium-term goods that we need to assure people of to allow them to live in a uh, sufficiently open society where religious ends can be pursued. Uh, and I would argue, on Aquinas' view, and I hold that view, based on our human nature, where we can pursue religious ends based on the kind of nature we have, but we don't necessarily treat uh, people who are religious animals, whether they recognize it or not, in an indignified manner if they, have, if they hold to religious error, what I consider religious error, my religious viewpoint, or if they don't have a religious viewpoint at all, if they're, you know, unreligious or non-religious, anti-religious, indifferent to it. But why? Because, I mean, you're, you're dealing, from a from Aquinas' point of view, you're dealing with a free elective choice to pursue the final end and to come to that moral wisdom uh, in whatever way, in, in, in a free and deliberative way, right? So if you, rep- if you oppress the religious freedom of the other person, uh, at least in many instances, what you're doing is, in fact, removing their natural uh, capacity and obligation to seek religious truth by their own power and to embrace it freely. And that's not a social good. So there are religiously motivated reasons to uh, accept religious pluralism and a religious pluralism. And so that, I mean, just kind of showing you where some of this can all go. I mean, we're talking about trying to avoid totalitarianism. We're trying to try to talk about having a society that has an open, shared uh, pursuit of the truth. And at the same time, that allows pursuit of the true and authentic end, if Aquinas is right, which is some kind of, contemplation of the philosophical truth about our ultimate meaning of our existence against the backdrop and horizon of knowledge of God. Right? So you can have an all-too-immanentistic conception of what human beings should live for, and then your, your moral wisdom becomes very shrunken. Uh, just shut up and live for the food. Just shut up and live for pleasure. Just shut up and live for um, you know, the pursuit of scientific knowledge of empirical reality. 
Don't ask the big metaphysical questions and, and don't love invisible things. Right. But what if human freedom is never satisfied by that? Then you, the, pro, the problem is you're, it's an, asset, it's an artificial asceticism where you're reducing the human being to a Procrustean bed of a reductive philosophy. So there's a lot of stake about the flourishing of authentic human happiness, human freedom. That's moral wisdom, figuring out what we should live for. More moral prudence is about those last two negotiable categories. How should I arrange the means? And how should I choose? How should I arrange the various goods among each other? And how should I arrange the means in view of the end? I mean, should I go? Should I um, should I get married or should I live to be a uh, just give myself full time to the pursuit of philosophy like Immanuel Kant did, right? Kant never got married so he could be devoted to philosophy. It's disputable. It's that's an interesting moral question, I think, for a Christian theologian. That's an interesting question. Uh, can you do? Can you can you choose to forego marriage for the pursuit of a natural good like philosophy? It's a hard question. Um, or you know, should I move to? Should I study philosophy in um, this university or that university? Or should I you know pursue this class in philosophy or that class in philosophy? Going down the to the, the lower levels. Okay. So I want to just finish now. As promised, I've spoken a little too long, 35 minutes. I want to just finish by now by noting some things about the pandemic, because I think there's interesting questions about prudence. So there are if there are more fundamental goods that are more basic and you need to build on, uh, and there are more ultimate goods, you don't want to have a moral wisdom or a form of prudence that, that pits them against each other. Right? So the danger, I think, with the pandemic is that you're going to say everything is about bodily health and the protection of the vulnerable and the integrity of our medical community's capacity to care for the sick. And so we're going to, if we need to, annihilate all the other goods to preserve the most fundamental good. I mean, there are cases where that becomes increasingly obviously prudent. So if you had, a, a, if you had a, an illness that was killing 75% of the, of the community who was infected, and um, it was extremely contagious, it would be able to destroy everything, almost everything about human human community. I mean, then you would be like, you would have to maximize every resource. If it's killing 1% of the population, that's different in terms of where you, how you calculate, because it, you're trying to preserve a, a basic good for 1% of the population and maybe long-term health for a larger percent, like four or 5%. So you do want to be careful to try to safeguard that basic public good, because we are talking about a significant number of people and then, you know, a significant percentage of the population. But then you've got higher goods. Let's call those things like the right to work and pursue a livelihood, uh, the pursuit of uh, education in an ordinary context, uh, the pursuit of religious worship, freedom of worship. But also let's add freedom of uh, movement, the psychological health that comes from freedom of um, ordinary expressions of mobility and travel. Um, the enjoyment of life, going to restaurants. I mean, just things that people kind of need psychologically over the long duration for a balanced life. Those aren't all of equal worth, right? But you have to start to think at what point are some of those more or less negotiable? Like eating in a restaurant uh, versus the threat currently of this wave of the pandemic. Religious worship is more important vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic as a whole, right? So I'm, I'm for like the idea that you should absolutely try to keep public worship going and open in the long duration, uh, and it's actually a requirement, morally and ethically. The, the political prudence is going to be to try to think about how to safeguard 
the greatest number of goods in the most balanced fashion for the greatest possible outcomes for all. So as to preserve, you might call them multiple common goods in harmony and conform with each other. And the truth is that's very difficult and intelligent people who think about it a lot are going to disagree about how to do it. So you're going to have some people who think, well, everything is about right now protecting the elderly until we get a vaccine. You have other people think we have to have a balance. So you have to have, um, you know, some protection of the most vulnerable and, as, and, and safeguarding procedures like wearing masks, and hand sanitizing, and maybe some teaching online. And then you're also going to need to think about how to keep the economy going, how you're going to also have to keep uh, education going, uh, how you're going to allow people freedom of worship, how you're going to encourage actually religious um, existential self-orientation and religious service of others during the pandemic, uh, and how you're going to have people have a healthy, balanced uh, psychology, uh, and how much you're going to use federal and state law to enforce norms on people, sometimes contrary to their will, when a certain kind of free participation in society is also a dimension of common good, right? So that's where those second two aspects of negotiability of the the, 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 the arrangement of the different common, the different goods as they relate to different common goods, different ways of being community with other people, and uh, the kind of factors of means versus ends uh, come into play. Uh, and, you know, Aquinas basically thinks some things in the moral life are intrinsic evils, and we know we shouldn't do those. You shouldn't murder, murder the innocent. He says you shouldn't commit adultery. Uh, um, there's there's uh, plenty of other cases you shouldn't tell lies. Uh, you know, if you do them, you should ask for forgiveness and try to uh, um, improve your life and your character thereafter. But those things are pretty clearly wrong. But there's a lot of prudential questions that aren't questions of just what must be done or what must not be done. They're really questions of what seems wise or fitting prudently in a given context. And a lot of our hard decisions, including these political ones around the pandemic, are really not questions about intrinsic evils. They're, they're really questions about what's prudent and how we can orchestrate work together to safeguard the, number, the greatest number of goods in the most harmonized fashion for the greatest outcome for most people in different, to preserve different kinds of common goods uh, in society. The only thing I'll say to finish, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna finish, is that um, I think the religious orientation matters a lot when you're looking at life and death issues, because if you believe ultimately that the human being has a spiritual soul and is oriented beyond the horizon of this world, you don't you don't become glib about human life or about the dignity of the human body or about human health. In fact, you can value it more because you have a kind of religious obligation. There's a religious dignity to the human body and the human life. Uh, in, the, in the sight of God, but you do acquire a kind of option for fortitude, an option for courage, uh, and otherworldly prudence and otherworldly happiness. I mean, a kind of joy and stability, even in the midst of mortality. And that is something we need in general in life, because we are, in fact, bound to die and destined to die. And we need to think about the religious horizon of meaning beyond death. But in a, in a context like this, that becomes more acute. And so people who have a religious perspective and have moral wisdom and prudence and balance have an important role to play to try to not allow the crisis to become the occasion for collapsing into a too imminent frame of prudence and keeping us with a higher religious register of meaning and a higher noble spiritual register of meaning, including intellectual goods, the artistic goods that are at stake, not just everything's about the body, without becoming religious in a morbid way and sort of neglecting the respect of human health and the human body. So a balanced prudence is helped by a balanced religious orientation in the midst of this kind of crisis. Father, I had one just kind of quick 
clarification question and then maybe maybe a hard question. But Father, when you're speaking of negotiables versus non-negotiables, I thought I got the sense of what you meant by the non-negotiables. That is, it's like you can't not seek happiness and you can't not seek to order the ends. But when you're talking about the negotiables, I was just wondering, it almost seemed like there were two senses of negotiable that mm-hmm. you were using. I just wanted to make sure that I was understanding. So it seemed like in one sense, it's just, it's not a non-negotiable. In other words, it is something that you can not choose God as your ultimate end. Yeah. And as you said, you can choose the 36 pack of bush light in the trailer park. But in, in another sense, it seemed like you were saying that there's a negotiable sense in which, okay, do I choose marriage or do I choose priesthood? Which it, it seems to me like those are different senses of something being negotiable. So I was just wondering if you could make that that distinction. No, okay. Yeah, I think I probably wasn't clear enough about that. Thank you, Tim. That's a great uh, question. So, I mean, in the first sense, what I mean is, I said about the first one, uh, we do actually have an objective final end, whatever it is. But people can actually disagree about what it is. And you just pointed that out. Uh, so some people could pursue a certain kind of, um, um, you know, pleasure in this world. And other people could think there's a religious conception. Intelligent people can disagree. And that will make them different kinds of people. But then even when you got, so that was the first, the first uh, uh, negotiable. What, what am I living for? And then the second one is, if I know what I'm living for, or I have a basic intuition, there are other things that I consider good. How do I arrange my life vis-a-vis those other things? So, you know, maybe I do live for my family as my ultimate end. I don't know if there's a God. I don't know if there's like some great philosophical way of life. But I know that I love my family. I live for them, Uh, my wife and kids. Okay. But then I have to also pursue things like work. And I like my work. And my work's meaningful. And I also like being a member of my baseball team, my, uh, you know, evening baseball team. And uh, it's also really important to me, like my friends, some of my my friendships outside my family. Like, how do I balance all that? That's what I'm talking about as the second negotiable. Because, you you know, everyone who agrees that you just live for your family and nobody knows if there's anything more than that can still argue about how to arrange those things uh, under the banner of whatever they take to be the final good. So that's where I was trying to go with that. The difficult question that I would ask you is regarding political freedoms, like right now, we've got this, such this debate about free speech. You want to have a discourse in which people are not easily misled. Like, like you said, if we're teaching people there is no greater good other than the biological good, then we're actively misleading people. And so politically, you want to say, hey, I should be able to stop that. But that power to limit speech and to say, like, this is legitimate, this is not legitimate. It's like when held by the legitimate philosopher king who properly orders things, that's a good power. But it's a power that doesn't always, and in fact, most often doesn't fall into the hands of the philosopher king. It might fall to uh, Facebook's fact checkers, who, when wielding that power, might wield it in a crazy way. Do you say, therefore, that you shouldn't have the power, that that you should just have the, the libertarian view, all speech should just be free? Or are you left with, no, there should be like a power of quote unquote censorship 
but you just have to make sure that the sensors are the right sensors. To be overly simplistic, but I think you have two two contemporary. I think you have two poles that you can tend towards, and one would be a pole a pole towards perfectionism, political perfectionism, and another to pull towards political libertarianism. If you if you aim towards now, I think Aquinas is a political perfectionist, and I'm a political perfectionist, whether Aquinas is or not. Meaning, I think we have to try to aim in politics towards the making of good citizens through virtuous behavior, and we have to have normative concepts of what that consists in. So it's not just a free for all or a purely libertarian speculative enterprise where you believe what you want, I believe what you I want, and we just tolerate each other. Right? So the kind of differentiated consensus libertarianism seems to me not an option if you're a perfectionist, because you need to have some conception of the normal good that we need to all pursue together as a, as a part of the political process. So it's good that kids know a lot about math. They also should know a lot about realistic philosophy of the human person. They should also know something about the virtues. So I believe in kind of normative philosophical claims in education, which is a strong perfectionist view. And of course, as you say, it, then it, a lot of things would be like, who's in power, who's in control of the educational system. But then on the other side, you are going to have differentiated views, and you've got to also think about the good of getting social participation uh, in a pluralistic society, which de facto we live in. And there you could take perfectionism against all libertarianism and say, well, a strong perfectionist view means you need to try to kind of uh, integrate and not integrate everyone into the one conforming view and not tolerate dissonance. I don't think that's prudent because I don't think that that's sufficiently respectful of the moment, as it were, the libertarian moment of self-deliberation, free consent. And so, yeah, a lot, a lot of people are just going to disagree about ultimate goods. So then I think you have, then you have really a prudent question. It's not an absolute question. It's a prudent question about how much free speech to permit in what domains. So that, I mean, free speech is a good. And certain kinds of ideological pressure against free speech are very dangerous. And are specifically because they're, they rest on ideological grounds, they risk to uh, uh, limit legitimate freedoms, uh, destroy the freedom of the pursuit of wisdom and thought, and militantly police people for the sake of ideology. And there's been a lot of that in the 20th century from many different um, directions, most notably communism, and there are certain forms of neo-Marxism in the air these days, as we all know, uh, very close to home. On the other hand, um, it's true you need normative definitions. And so I don't think you get away, I think, I think what you want is some prudent mix of, of perfectionism, uh, political perfectionism, and the attempt at relative and reasonable liberal order or order that takes seriously human freedom. And that's where you're going to find that as we get become more disaggregated or as there's waves of illiberal ideology, you're going to have more trouble to find consensus in its differentiation.